0: We want to turn now to God's Word, I encourage you to open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 3. We're turning to a new chapter in the gospel this morning. We're also turning to a new chapter in the life and ministry of Jesus. In chapter 1 of Mark, remember, we were introduced to Jesus, to who he was and to what he had come to do. But in chapter 2, we saw people of various backgrounds questioning Jesus they were questioning his actions which cut against their expectations for righteousness were, which were built up around the Jewish traditions, questions that came because of his eating with tax collectors, his habits of fasting or not fasting, and his approach to Sabbath regulations. But now as we turn to Mark chapter 3, battle lines begin to form. Questions turn to accusations. Concern turns to opposition. Well, at the same time, Jesus calls a particular group of apostles to join him in preaching and exercising authority. We want to watch these battle lines form as we read together Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. Listen as we read God's word. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Father, you've given us your word, and we thank you for this portion of it this morning, and how we pray that you would use it to draw us closer to Jesus, and we pray it for his sake. Amen. If you were asked to summarize the history of Europe in the second half of the 20th century, undoubtedly we would talk about the Cold War, and the conflict between the communist bloc in the east, led by the Soviet Union, and the democracies to the west, led by the United States. But if you were to rewind history to the early days after the World War, that outcome was far from certain, and nowhere was that more evident than in the city of Prague. In the years of 1945 to 1948, for three-plus years the United States and the Soviet Union jockeyed for leverage, and the Czech people ebbed and flowed in their preferences for one or the other as they voted in free elections. Questions were asked. Both sides did their best to persuade. Actions were taken at some level, but it was not until 1948 with the Communist Party quickly losing popularity and support for the United States and the Marshall Plan growing, the communists decided they had to act. And so, having infiltrated the police, they stirred up riots, killed key non-communist leaders, and pressured President Benes to accept a new government that drew lines in the sand and established communism for the decades to come. Well, Here in Mark 3, we face a similar development in the life of Jesus. To this point, the scribes and the Pharisees have questioned Jesus. They've protested his claims. They've sat around listening and arguing about some of the things he said. But in the face of their opposition or their questions, Jesus' popularity only continues to soar. And with the crowds growing and Jesus' popularity rising, they move to openly draw lines in the sand and oppose him. Yet in the face of their opposition, Jesus withdraws and gathers his disciples, specifically calling a group of 12 apostles who will be with him to extend his ministry. And it's this development of open opposition to Jesus on the one side with a clear call to discipleship with Jesus on the other that shapes and is the main point of chapter 3 in Mark. And I want us to watch this morning the formation of these two groups. So let's begin with the opposition to Jesus that becomes clear in verses 1 through 6. The scene is set here on another Sabbath day. As Jesus again enters the synagogue and the Pharisees and the scribes are watching him. Now, the Greek word for to watch here is not the normal word for to look at or to watch. It's a word that specifically refers to a diligent, careful, watching something with intent. This presence of the scribes and Pharisees here is like the police presence shadowing a suspect in his every move. But verse 2 gives us the first clue that things have shifted. We've seen the Pharisees and the scribes watching Jesus for several years episodes now but here in verse 2 we read that they were watching him that they might accuse him in other words the scribes and pharisees are no longer data gathering they're no longer listening to jesus to see whether he might say something wrong they have concluded that jesus is dangerous and now they are watching for a reason to charge him with error but of course jesus is no innocent prey in their plots, Jesus also is on the watch. And Jesus is looking for an opportunity to confront the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees with the truth of God's word. And that opportunity comes with a man with a withered hand who enters the synagogue. And Jesus asks that man to step forward. You have to feel the tension in that room in that moment. And I wonder how much of that tension the man was aware of. Did, did he step into the center, kind of embarrassed at being in the, st- in the spotlight? Was he trembling under the gaze of the, the Pharisees? Did he realize all that was going on? Or were his eyes just fixed on Jesus, wondering what he was going to do for him? We don't really know, because the text focuses on the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. And Jesus asked them a question, What is lawful on the Sabbath? Now, to understand Jesus' question, we have to remember the Pharisees' perspective. If you remember from last week, the Pharisees' tradition had carefully defined what was lawful on the Sabbath and what was not. But their tradition based their answer about what was lawful, not on what was good or harmful, but on what was necessary. The Pharisee's perspective was on the Sabbath, you could only do what was absolutely necessary for saving life or else it was work and it was out of bounds. So for instance, if, if your house collapsed on the Sabbath day, you were only allowed to move the stones that you had to move to see if anyone alive was trapped underneath. You couldn't clear the rubble, you couldn't clear any other stones, and you could not even remove any dead bodies on the Sabbath because that was unnecessary. Or if you received a wound, if your wound was going to lead to death, it could be addressed on the Sabbath. But if it was not going to kill you, it could not be healed. So a broken bone would have to wait till the next day to set because that was not essential. So in the Pharisees' mind, this is a clear case. This man's had a withered hand for months, maybe years. He can wait another 24 hours, Jesus, to be healed on a non-Sabbath day. But Jesus reframes the question. He asks not whether the matter can wait or not, but whether the Sabbath is for doing good or for doing harm, for saving life or killing it. And you hear, I think, Jesus' point, surely to look at a man who's suffering and to be able to heal him and to refuse to do so is to do him harm. Is that what God's word calls us to do on the Sabbath? And further, of course, behind Jesus' question is what is most in line with the rest and the peace and the redemption that the Sabbath day pointed to? Letting a suffering man go another day or healing him and restoring him to his created wholeness? As Jesus asks in the book of Luke, Will you not rescue an ox that falls into a trap? Will you not untie a donkey and lead him to water on the Sabbath day? Then, how much more should a person created in God's image be freed from their bondage and suffering on the Sabbath day? What could be more appropriate than for Jesus, the Son of God, to call an ailing man to come to him, to stretch forth his hand, to go and to be healed on the Sabbath day. So here is Jesus. He appeals to their logic. He appeals to Scripture. He appeals to the suffering of a fellow image-bearer of God, which is lawful to do good or harm. But in response, the Pharisees only stare in silence and then go out to plot his demise. And here we see how thoroughly external and legalistic the Pharisees' approach to the law was without any regard for a person's heart. Because apparently, you could go out and plot murder on the Sabbath day so long as you didn't cross one of the 39 categories of work. But you could not heal a suffering man because that would cross the rules. Now, there are a number of factors behind the Pharisees' response to Jesus and their silence But verse 5 calls attention to the most important factor. There we read that when Jesus looked at him, the central thing he saw was hardness of heart. Now in scripture, a hard heart refers to stubborn opposition or chosen determination to reject the truth of God's word in order to hold on to what one wants in life or wants to believe in life. It is a chosen determination to follow my perspective rather than listen to the word of God. And the point of scripture here is that the root of the Pharisees and scribes and their opposition to Jesus was not bad logic. It was not merely that their tradition made sense to them or was what they were used to. The root of their opposition was hearts that were stubbornly opposed to the needs of others in the Word of God brought through the Son of God due to their commitment to their interests and their tradition. And I think it's particularly significant, and I want to draw our heart's attention to this, that in Scripture, hardness of heart is almost always associated with religious people who know God's Word. Tax collectors and sinners are called lost or blind or enslaved or dead, And they need to be rescued. But it is the religious person who knows the word of God who is described as having a hard heart. For they know what God's word says, but have chosen to reject its claims in order to live according to their perspective instead. And just think about what that means for us. What that means is that hardness of a heart is a sin that those of us who have grown up in the church who know the gospel, who know God's word, need to be particularly on guard against. For it means that a decision to live for the world or for my desires or for my expectations or according to my chosen way of life, rather than submit to God's word that I have heard, is not a matter of mere lost blindness but as a stubborn and chosen determination to live for myself and my desires and my perspective rather than to heed the call of Christ. And brothers and sisters, that is a dangerous place to be, a place that begs for repentance and faith in the only one who can forgive our sins and change our hearts and bring us his salvation. Now, before we move on, I want us to notice Jesus' response to the silent Pharisees. The text says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, when it says that he was grieved at their hardness of heart here, it does not mean that he was sad for them. It means that there is an anguish of heart that comes when we stare wickedness in the face. And when we see this anguish in Jesus' heart, we have a picture here of the God-man, a picture of human emotion expressed in a way that is perfectly shaped by the divine holiness of God. Because there must be an anguish of heart, isn't there, whenever we look at wickedness? I think of a determined effort to kill Jews in Germany. The lynching of a black man in Alabama, a bill to allow babies to be killed up to 30 days after birth in Maryland, the massacre of 21 in an elementary school in Texas. What is this but evil? And that anguish of heart when looking at evil must and appropriately responds in anger. That is how we ought to respond. The old Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield puts it this way. He says, it would be impossible for a truly moral being to stand in the presence of wrong, indifferent and unmoved. Precisely what we mean by a moral being in the first place is a being who is perceptive of the difference between right and wrong and reacts appropriately. The emotions of indignation and anger belong, therefore, to the very self-expression of a moral being and cannot be lacking to him in the presence of wickedness. We should know, therefore, that Jesus, living in the conditions of this earthly life under the curse of sin, could not fail to be the subject of a whole series of angry emotions. And here we have the right... Godly, divine response to staring at evil, to staring at the callous refusal to care for God's truth and God's word. Now, we must, of course, add the caution that our hearts are so often grieved by affronts to ourselves and so often up and armed by misperceived wrongs that we must be extremely cautious of the anger that surges up in our hearts we know how quickly our sin takes hold of opportunities to become angry in a self-oriented way. But with that caution in place, we also have to add that there is a righteous anger that Jesus displays. And for us to fail to respond with that anger and to act for what is good when staring at moral wickedness is also to fail to respond in Christ-like godliness. And so Jesus And his anger sets us an example. So here we have Jesus' righteous anger, but it is met only with hatred. As the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Herodians join together in an axis of opposition to Jesus and begin to plan his destruction in verse 6. Now you have to know that the Pharisees and the Herodians were total enemies. They were committed to opposite things. And so here we have Jesus who not only brings his disciples together, but he brings his enemies together across lines they would not normally cross. But we'll see more of their opposition next week. For now, let's turn to verses 7, to 7 through 19, where in response, Jesus withdraws and calls together his team that will extend his ministry. And the first thing I want us to note is in verses 7 through 12, because If you were looking for a group of people who would support you in the face of opposition, most of us would say an incredibly large, very zealous crowd would be the perfect group to go for some support. In fact, every leader in history has leveraged this kind of crowd to gain support for themselves. And yet Jesus refuses to do so. You see this crowd here. The crowd is emphasized twice. It is a great crowd, a large crowd. We've seen large crowds following Jesus before, but the size and zeal of this crowd reaches new heights. We're given six different geographic locations that this crowd is coming from that span all of Israel, Galilee and even Tyre and Sidon in the north, Judea down to Idumea in the south, across the Jordan in the east. A crowd like this is almost unparalleled, perhaps outside of the gathering for the Passover. And this is not just a large group that's calmly sitting back listening to Jesus talk. This is a desperate crowd coming with such a desire and such an urgency that verse 9 says that they had to have a boat ready for Jesus lest he would be crushed. For he had healed many and they were pressing around him. Now last fall, about seven months ago, 10 people were crushed to death at a concert in Houston, Texas, as the out-of-control crowd of 50,000 surged towards the stage, and people were crushed by its weight. But that's the kind of image we have here as a boat needs to be ready to keep Jesus from being crushed. This kind of crowd could be so easily manipulated and used, but not Jesus. Jesus does not ride the energy of the crowd or appeal to it. In fact, John two twenty four says that Jesus specifically did not commit himself to the crowds for he knew what was in man. Jesus knew that some from this crowd would respond in faith and follow him, but he also knew that many from this crowd would join the axis of opposition and shout, crucify him a few years down the road. So here is Jesus preaching and healing, fishing the crowd that his sheep might hear his voice and follow him. But it is not the crowd that he turns to for his support. That, For that we find in verses 13 through 19 that Jesus withdraws a second time, this time from the crowds and goes further up to the mountain and calls those whom he wanted to be with him. Those disciples that he had chosen and called, he invites. And Luke's account makes it clear that it's a large group of disciples that went with him. And from that group, he chose 12 to set apart for a particular role as apostles. Now, surely the number of 12 is significant. It reflects the 12 sons of Jacob who served as the foundation for the 12 tribes of Israel. And just as the arrival of Jesus, we found out last chapter, requires much more than a mere patch on the ceremonial regulations, but a new garment and new wineskins, so Jesus gathers a new group of 12 Israelite men to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and upon which he will build his people who through faith in him will receive the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel. I want us to look at these 12 apostles. I want us to look at what Jesus calls them to do. We find it in verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, it says that Jesus appointed them to be with him. And it's difficult to overemphasize the importance of this statement. In Acts 1.21, when the apostles decide to replace Judas Iscariot, they decide that the new apostle must be someone who was with them as Jesus went in and out among them from his baptism onward. In other words, he had to have been with Jesus. And the impact of being with Jesus is dramatic. It was so profound that it changed these men in ways that astounded those who were around them. You remember Acts chapter 4 verse 13? The apostles have been preaching about Jesus, and the Jews were amazed at their boldness, unable to comprehend how some fishermen would preach with such boldness and clarity. But then the text says, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. This being with Jesus is the profound importance for these apostles You know, we know the impact of spending significant time with an influential person. If a violinist takes lessons with a particular teacher, the master's style shapes that student in noticeable ways. The artists Manet, and then after him Monet, significantly influenced a group of painters who gathered together and copied their techniques and became known as a group as the Impressionists. But if the influence of one human on another is so noticeable... How much more will the influence of the Son of God, who has the power to change hearts, who sends the Holy Spirit of God to transform us and strengthen us in guidance, how much more will He shape who we are if we are with Him? How much more noticeable will it be when someone has been with Jesus? Now, of course, the apostles are called to be with Jesus in a unique way but surely all his disciples should be recognized as those who have been with Jesus. Just think of some of the things the New Testament tells us that should be true of God's people. Paul urges the Colossians in chapter 3 to set their minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for they have died and their life is hidden with Christ. We had to set our minds on things above because we are hidden with Christ. Or think of Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says, having been dead in our trespasses and sin, God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. In fact, the essence of our hope is to be with Jesus. You think of Jesus' own prayer in John 17 right before he was crucified he prayed to his Father that not just the apostles, but all who would believe in his name might be with him where he is. And so as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, as we fellowship with Christ through God's word and in prayer, as we look to the things that are above where Christ is, our prayer should be that others might look at us and be struck by the fact that we have been with jesus to be with him is the thing that makes all the difference well then jesus adds in verse 15 that the purpose of the apostle's presence with him was that jesus might send them out to preach and to cast out demons again all christ's disciples are called to witness to christ jesus will later send 70 out To preach about the kingdom of God. Pastors and elders today are called particularly to teach and preach in the church. But the apostles are uniquely called to preach and to exercise authority. I think of these 12 apostles up there on the mountain that evening. Surely there's no way that they would have been able to know what this call on their lives would entail. The three years of opposition that they would face, watching Jesus be crucified, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being sent everywhere from Italy to India and everywhere in between, imprisoned, beaten, many of them executed for their faith. They couldn't have foreseen all that was ahead of them. But the essence of their calling was clear right here from the start. They are called to be with Jesus, and having been with Jesus, then to be sent out to preach the good news of the gospel and to exercise authority even over demons. That is Jesus' purpose for his apostles. Well, having told us what the apostles would do, Mark then gives us a list of these 12 men, and this is a fascinating group of 12 men that Jesus calls to be his apostles, And I want to take just a minute here as we come to the end of our passage to reflect on at least three things that I find noteworthy about this group of apostles. The first thing I think is interesting is that the call of Jesus clearly cuts across personalities. We have quite the diverse group of personalities here. You've got Peter, the brash, the bold, the always talking and always putting his foot in his mouth. You have John. And we see the intimacy of John's writings in his gospel and his epistles. Well, and then there's, of course, Thomas, the cynical, pessimistic Thomas. Well, we might as well go die with Jesus. I'm never believing unless I put my finger in that hole in his hands. What a a group of of people. Probably a group of people that's well reflected across the body of Christ. You know, we can be very quick to judge those who are different than us, who have different personalities and different characteristics. We can say, oh, they're so naive, or they're so critical, they're so untrusting, or they're way too nice. And certainly all of these can be reflective of weaknesses in our lives. But I think this group of apostles makes it clear that introverts and extroverts, optimists and pessimists, the cautious and the rash... And many others are called and sanctified in Christ's presence. There is not one set of personalities that are useful to the kingdom. For all of these men are called by Christ and used by him for the gospel. And that should be comforting and hopeful for all of us wherever we fall on this personality spectrum. Even as it should also call us to greater patience with one another. So I think this group of 12 cuts across personality. Jesus' call also cuts across other loyalties. You know, and I think about the picture of Jesus calling out these 12 apostles. You know, I'm going to call Peter. I'm going to call John. I'm going to call Simon the zealot. And I'm going to call Matthew the tax collector. And those two must have been a little jarred by the calling of the other one you mean i have to i have to stand by this this zealot who's dedicated to fighting to restore jewish nationalism You mean i've got to stand next to this ally with rome who's been taxing us all these years that guy's in the mix you know jesus call cuts across loyalties I, i have a distinct memory i think i was 14 years old it happened in the summer I was an avid Cleveland Indians baseball fan at this stage of my life. And you need to know that uh, much of what I wore, much of the things that I did came down to my fandom for the Indians. Many of my loves and hates, hopes and fears were driven by the fate of the Indians at this stage in my life. Yes, it was likely idolatrous. Uh, But I can still see myself. I was up at Camp of the Woods Family Retreat Center. Speculator New York, listening to an older man talk about his faith in Christ and experiencing a flood of dismay and confusion. Because I looked over and this man who was talking about Jesus was wearing a New York Yankees hat. <laughs> and I am not joking when I say that I had a moment of pause and think, I didn't think you could be a Christian and root for the Yankees. How can you love Jesus and root for the Empire of Evil? It's almost as jarring as having a pastor on your staff who roots for Bill Belichick and the Patriots. (laughs) And of course, we're able to fellowship as fellow believers across these loyalties, even if we keep our loyalties to our sports teams, because we know that these loyalties are so deeply secondary to our unity in Christ and our commitment and focus on the kingdom of God. And I think the question for us is, will we see the types of issues that could have divided Simon the zealot and Matthew the tax collector? Issues like taxation, the role of the government, big government, small government, freedom versus security, nationalism versus globalism. While we stand firm on the truth of God's word, will we see these issues, even while we may retain our opinions as so deeply secondary to our unity in Christ and our shared commitment to the gospel and the kingdom of God, that, that they ought to have no power to divide us in the body of Christ. For the issues and the passions that defined these men before coming to Christ, when they are not biblical, rooted in scriptural truth, they fade into the background compared to their call together to serve Christ and his kingdom. So Jesus' call cuts across personalities. It cuts across other loyalties. But finally, Jesus' call cuts across egos. You know, when we think of the apostles, I think it's easy for us to think of the superheroes of the faith, to think of, of the men who really performed great things for God. But think about this list. Look through this list of 12 names and ask yourself, what do we know from Scripture about the accomplishments of these 12? We know a lot about what Peter did. We know a fair bit about what John did. We know what Judas Iscariot did. We have a very, very few brief facts about Matthew. He wrote a gospel. About Philip, he met a guy from Ethiopia. And James, he was killed for his faith. But beyond that, we really don't know anything about these 12. We don't read about what Bartholomew did or Thaddeus did or Andrew did or Simon the Zealot did. We don't know. It's not recorded in Scripture but that is often the way the kingdom of God works not by fame and doing great things for God that will be recorded and remembered by all the generations but by unrecorded faithfulness as we do what God calls us to do and as we do what God calls us to do even though many will not remember any of the details God's kingdom goes forward because that is how he works and if that was true of the apostles how much more should that be true for us? We're not called as apostles. We're called to be faithful mothers and faithful fathers. We're called to be faithful husbands and faithful wives. We're called to be faithful judges and teachers and businessmen and nurses. We're called to be faithful to talk to our neighbors about Christ. We're called to be faithful to serve in the church with the gifts God has given us. And while probably none of us will have biographies written about us, or at least most of us won't, People will not be writing and singing of the deeds we've accomplished for God. If we are faithful where God has put us, then God in his providence, by his power, will build his kingdom through us one person at a time and one generation at a time until that day when millions join the theme and sing his praises around the throne. That is our calling, and that is our hope, and is so encouraging. So here we are. The battle lines have been drawn. The axis of opposition who are plotting to destroy Jesus and the disciples who are called to be with Jesus. We'll see these lines drawn again next week. But what I hope we see as we come to the end of this passage this morning is that how we respond to Jesus is the defining issue of our lives. Will we decide that Jesus' call is a problem and reject him? Will we be interested in God's blessings, but only when they fit our needs and desires so that we then ignore him and turn away when they no longer suit us? Or will we respond to the call of Jesus by coming to be with him, by repenting of sin and placing our trust in him so that he is our all in all? Jesus calls us. May we answer. May we follow him in repentance and faith with our whole hearts and our whole lives. The glory of his name let's pray father how we thank you for jesus christ our savior and our lord how we thank you that he came to declare the good news of the kingdom of god to call us to repent of sin to offer us salvation through faith in his name father how i pray that as his call cuts across our egos and our loyalties and our personalities to bring us to him May Jesus be all in all for us. May we follow him. May our lives reflect him. That others look at us and say, what is different? Oh, they have been with Jesus. I pray that this would be true to the glory of your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania.